So we're about halfway through our series on Amos, and tonight we're taking on Amos 5 and 6. This is the last time we're going to have to double up on chapters. Um, so I think we've got, what, three more after this? We've had 7, 8, and 9. But today, we're going to be reading chapters 5 and 6, and chapter 5 begins on 1424 in your pew Bibles. If you want to follow along on paper, otherwise the words will be on the screen. Read this quickly, so pay attention. Amos chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will only have a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go out to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile. And Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns blackness into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailings in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his head on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. 
Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalnan, look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath. Then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds and laid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If 10 men are left in one house, they too will die. And if a relative who is to burn the bodies comes to carry them out of the house and asks anyone, asks anyone still hiding in there, is anyone with you? And he says, no, then he will say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Carnaim by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the valley of Arabah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. So we're going to focus our attention tonight primarily on chapter 5, because I can't cover all of this in one shot. But the first verse in chapter 6 is where we begin, because that was the most poignant verse to me anyway. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Now, over the past few weeks, we have been wrestling with just what is God so upset with Israel about? And we have learned that there were a number of reasons. First, there was a failure on the part of the people, particularly the part of the leaders of the people, to promote justice within Israelite society. Second, there was neglect or outright oppression of the poor and marginalized in Israelite society. And third, there were all these religious ideas and practices that on the surface looked good, but once you dug down, they really were practices that had no substance, okay? At the beginning of chapter 6, I think that Amos kind of identifies the problem in a fresh way. He says, hey, woe to you, woe to you who are complacent, you who feel secure, you who have it all figured out, you who think that God is just perpetually pleased with you no matter what you do, you who have stopped trying, stopped striving, stopped seeking. It's believed that Amos preached these two chapters 
at a festival of some sorts. And so we could, if we took a moment, picture in our mind's eye some sort of celebration where, where people are gathered together and they're eating and they're drinking and they're uh, enjoying themselves, okay? And so we could also picture Amos standing there in a, in a prominent place, kind of maybe up on his soapbox, if you will, this public place, and he begins to, to raise his voice. But into this, at least on the surface, joyous occasion, Amos speaks words of lament. One commentator uh, says that his language is actually funeral language. It's, it's death language. Verse 1, hear this word, O house of Israel, this is the lament that I take up concerning you. And so Amos' Amos's words are, are meant, they're intended to kind of provide this stark contrast. I mean, here's a nation, here's a society that on the surface seems to be thriving and, and doing really well, economically prosperous and, and even kind of religiously robust. On the surface, this is how things look. And so death and funerals are going to be the, the last thing that are on these people's minds. But look at both the content and the tense used in verse 2. Fallen, fallen, past tense, fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. Amos speaks as though this judgment that he is speaking from God, he's talking as though this judgment has already happened. The judgment upon the nation of Israel is that close. It is that close that Amos is talking in past tense about it. And I want you to understand that this rhetoric, this rhetoric is designed to confront these people to confront these, these complacent people and to provoke them because Amos still has hope in his heart that the people in Israel will wake up and realize that, that this is not right and this is what's going to happen if we don't repent. Amos wants to wake them up to reality and that's so hard. So hard to wake people up to a reality when things seem to be going well, seem to be going smooth. Verse 3 makes crystal clear, crystal clear that this is an urgent warning. This is what the sovereign Lord says, people. City that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will only have a hundred left. The town that marches out 100 strong will only have 10 left. We're talking about 90%, 90% wiped out. So has this all been decided? Has it all been decided? Is there not even a sliver of hope left? Well, what does Amos say in, chapter, in verse 4? This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. And then in verse 6, he repeats it, seek the Lord and live. Is this all decided? No. Is there a sliver of hope? Absolutely. While there is breath in our lungs, there is hope. God is that gracious. And so in context, Israel's not dead yet. Yes, the funeral is planned. But as I said, while there is breath in the body, there is still hope. And so here, 
is a faithful, loving God. I mean, the God who created the universe, almighty, sovereign, omnipotent, all everything. And he reduces himself to pleading, pleading with mortal, sinful people, but at the same time, people he loves. And he is pleading with them to wake up and repent. So these warnings, these signs, even the judgment itself when the hammer falls are all designed to bring God's people to repentance, all meant for the greater good of God's people. That's amazing to me. And it goes to show that even in a dire situation like this, even with God so angry, even with God speaking death and funeral language through his servant Amos, it shows that God is not heartless, far from it. God is not mean-spirited, he's not vindictive, but at the same time, he is holy. And his perfect holiness, his perfect justice just will not allow him to bless a prideful people. Pride equals complacency. And so when he talks about woe to the complacent in chapter six, we're talking about a prideful people, but God is holy. His holiness does not allow him to bless a prideful people because that would be going against God's very nature. He will not do that. And so he sends this message. He sends out this plea, seek me and live. Seek me and live. That is the answer. And so we might ask, how do we do it? How do we seek? Well, Amos tells us, and yeah, it's a, it's a bleak picture, and he doesn't tell us in a positive way. Actually, he tells us in, in the negatives and the condemnations that he brings against Israel. But in those things, we start to understand just what we are being called to as God's people and as followers of Jesus Christ. The first point he makes actually precedes the how and goes all the way back to the what. So the first point is this, seek God, not religion. Verse five, uh, do not seek Bethel, do not go to Gilgal, do not journey to Beersheba. Those were the holy sites, okay? That's where people would go in Israel to offer their sacrifices. Those were the holy places. Goes on, for Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. And so I mentioned a couple weeks ago as well that Bethel and Gilgal were the, the religious shrines of the day. And every indication that we have about the time of Amos is that these shrines were, were full of worshipers. People were going to church. People were doing religious things. But as Amos uncovers, it was nothing more than going through the motions. This is what was kind of socially acceptable in the Israelite community, going through the motions, okay? But God tells us that, that God does not like it when he, people are doing religion for religion's sake. He doesn't like it when people seek religion because God wants us to desire to seek him. 
Because people need God, not not self-serving routines, even religious or pious ones. Seek God, not religion, because religion will not protect you. But here we're dealing with complacency again, going through the motions. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. So, seek God, not religion. Second point Amos makes, highlighted in verse 14, is that we are to seek good, not evil. Now, while the concept of good can have probably a pretty big range of meaning to us, Amos makes very clear what his working definition of good is. Good is striving for justice, God kind of justice uh, in society. And striving for justice is simply not happening in Israel. And this is what Amos brings to light. This is who gets called out. Verse 7, you who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Verse 10, uh, you hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. And so what that's telling us is that those who had power and, and influence were seeking not the kind of God justice that we're talking about. They're seeking uh, advantageous justice or self-serving justice. They were looking for justice that benefited them in some way rather than, rather than true justice for everyone in society, okay? Verse 11, you trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Verse 12, you oppress the righteous and take bribes and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. I mean... <laughs> Imagine living in a culture where there's just this vastly unequal distribution of power, where the gulf between the the haves and the have-nots is is just as wide as you can imagine. Imagine living in a culture where there are double standards and and special treatment in certain cases and and shady dealings going on, where uh, unjust people in in some context control the very definition of justice. Well, perhaps we don't have to stretch our imaginations that far, right? Amos mentions corruption in the courts. He mentions bribery as a common practice. He also mentions in verse 11 a tax system that favors some and punishes others. Uh, This is relevant stuff that easily speaks into our own experience. But what Amos tells us is that God is not blind to where the burdens really lie. God knows each and every one of our hearts to their very depths. God is not blind to where things are covered up. God is not blind to where the responsibility and the culpability truly lies. Well, Amos points to a culture so dysfunctional that wise and sensible people keep their mouths shut. Verse 13, therefore the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. So what that tells us, I guess a modern way of understanding that would be um, that in um, 800 BC Israel, uh, freedom of speech was gone. No one was allowed to speak up or or criticize the status quo. 
And so again, complacency, and we see how complacency can become a disease, a cancer to a society. And when that happens in our society, when it gets to the point where the church is is afraid to actually take on the culture, then we're in deep trouble. We see it all over the place. What does church want to do in our day and age? Church wants to acclimatize itself to what is popular in culture. And so I guess you could say that the church with a capital C in our world today, at least in our culture, is in pretty big trouble. When the church is afraid to take on the culture, we are in big trouble. You know, it brings up the two ways that human beings can go wrong. I mean, there's maybe more than that, but it brought up to me at least two ways that human beings can go wrong. Um, There's the secular way that we can go wrong, and that would be seeking good without God, all right? That's the failure of the 20th century. We, fi- we thought, oh, science and technology, we're going to be able to figure everything out, you know, be able to teach people to be peaceful, and we're just going to create this utopia. Well, two world wars and a lot of other stuff kind of demolished that idea. That's an example of seeking good without God, okay? But then there's a religious way that we can go wrong too, right? We can um, pretend we're seeking God without seeking good, Right? Hey, I'm a Christian. Yep, I I would consider myself a Christian. Well, are you concerned about justice in our society? Not not really, not really. Things are going pretty well for me. Um, You know, I I mind my own business. Uh, I take care of my own business. My family's thriving. I'm doing pretty well. So, you know, whatever's happening with other people, I'm I'm not terribly concerned about. That's that's seeking God uh, without seeking good. Uh, Just a way of saying it. But according to Amos, both of those philosophies are doomed to failure, okay? Because, you know, if you separate good and God, and if you separate God and good, then you're going to have inconsistency because God and good are, you know, riveted together, okay? They're riveted together and they cannot be separated. So verse 14 says, see good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you. Makes sense, right? Makes sense. If God and good are riveted together, then if you're seeking good, not evil, then the Lord will be with you, just as you say he is. And so only when Christians shake themselves out of their complacency, only when followers of Jesus are as passionate about justice for others as they are about justice for themselves, will they truly be living the reality that they profess to believe. Verse 15, hate evil, love good, and maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Perhaps God will show mercy. And herein lies a truth that our complacency fears. That perhaps God will show mercy. That ultimately it's not in our hands, it's in the hands of God. See, Those of us who are honest with ourselves know that we don't deserve mercy and that we cannot deserve mercy. It's not an entitlement. Mercy depends first on the one who has the power to grant it, the power to provide it. And frankly, that's a truth that makes both believers and unbelievers uncomfortable. That mercy is completely dependent on someone else, and yet there's nothing that human beings need more. 
Seek God and live. Seek good, not evil. The last warning from our text that confronts us this evening is this. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. In a culture, a society, a community that recognizes God, religious phrases are used uh, all too often to bring comfort and assurance to those who are complacent. Okay, that's my argument. The day of the Lord is one of those phrases that, if misused, can operate just that way. The day of the Lord, the day when judgment will come upon the wicked, the day when deliverance will come to all those who trust in the Lord. Amos claims that in his context, the context of a complacent Israel, this longing for the day of the Lord had actually created a false confidence in the hearts of God's people. He tells them in verse 18, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? Amos tells Israel that the day of the Lord is the last thing they should be excited about at the moment. For them, as things stood, the day of the Lord would be a day of darkness, not light. There would be no escape. That phrase, I love that phrase, from the jaws of a lion to the paws of a bear. There would be nowhere to run. There would be nowhere to find refuge. Why? Because Israel had it all figured out. Because Israel was safe. They had the right names. They came from the right families. They did not have to seek the Lord daily because they had a pass, right? They did not have to work out their faith and fear and trembling because God was on their side. Brothers and sisters, the thought of the day of the Lord should humble us before God as well. The thought of the day of the Lord should strip away every shred of pride and entitlement that we have. The thought of the day of the Lord should prevent any measure of complacency from ever setting into our lives. And if it is not functioning that way, then I hate to say it, but it is a false confidence that we have. But you know, even more devastating than the exposure of this false confidence is that God hates what is behind it, which is false religion. Verse 21, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Verse 22, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Here's a group of people that are doing all of the right things on paper, but people who are going through the motions not at all in fellowship with God, not at all in fellowship with each other, people stuck in complacency. Verse 23, away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. God is not listening. Why not? Verse 24, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. The way that I put this is that the problems that God is pointing to through his servant Amos are not Sunday problems. It is that Sunday has failed to affect Monday through Saturday in the least. In other words, 
The people claimed a faith, but it was a faith that was completely disconnected with life. See, true worship transforms. False worship, false religion does not. In fact, it actually does more harm than good because it gives us that sense of complacency. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, seeking God, seeking good, anticipating the day of the Lord with joy, but also anticipating the day of the Lord with humility, knowing that what we receive on the day of the Lord when Christ comes again is not something that we deserve. Peter, picking up on both Amos and Jesus, says this to Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of what? Righteousness, justice. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. There is no room, no room for complacency in the Christian life. Our Savior Jesus Christ died so that we might live and work and bear fruit. He puts us on a journey of growth and discipleship with ideally no plateaus. He opens the door to a relationship that provides all that we could ever need and a relationship that will never end, but it's a relationship that we are called to pursue. So brothers and sisters, in closing, seek the Lord so you may live. And may the Lord bless you in your pursuit of him. Amen. Let's pray.